Hey everyone, welcome to Global Migration, a special podcast series hosted by the Migration Research Cluster at the University of British Columbia. My name is Doug Ober and I'm the producer of this podcast. Over the next few weeks, I'll be bringing together an array of different speakers from across the globe to explore the ways that 21st century migration is changing in the time of COVID-19. Today, we listen in to a conversation between Dr. Randall Martin, the Executive Director of the BC Council for International Education, and Sandra Schinnerl, a PhD candidate in interdisciplinary studies at UBC and a researcher in our migration team. They discuss everything from how international education, labor markets, and student mobility are deeply entangled to how fears of traveling and the closing of international borders could have a long-term impact on not only international student life and mobility, but on the Canadian and global economy. Listen carefully and you'll even learn about the perennial wisdom of Beatles icon George Harrison and what role the special sauce plays in higher education. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Randall. Hi, Sandra. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I have the privilege of being with Randall Martin, Executive Director of the BC Council for International Education and uh, someone who knows a lot about not only the international education sector and industry, but has been an advocate and an active member of the community for a really long time. It's really great to be here with you. I think you just said I'm quite old, but I appreciate, I appreciate your kind words. I've known and worked with and respected Sandra for as many years as she would care to admit. And I must say she has become a real expert and I'm quite sure that she has already forgotten more about migration than I will ever learn. So we are very, very fortunate to have, have Sandra on the call today. Um, if I may, uh, Sandra, uh, just to try to start with a short sort of context building piece before we get into uh, uh, some discussion. So the, the terminology migration and mobility, I think we're going to be using migration as the overall definition of people crossing borders, international student mobility, or other kinds of mobility would be sort of a, below that on, on a taxonomic scale. One of my very dear colleagues from, from the UK, Michael Wolf said that migration is simultaneously a means of enhancing education provision and a global tragedy of massive proportions. It encapsulates the inequalities that are inherent in globalization. I think that's a nice way to frame this. People new to the field, I think, will often confuse globalization and internationalization. They are very linked concepts but fundamentally there are in their opposition or opposition i think in many ways internationalization and i'll talk about this a little bit later but it really arose as an academic response to globalization the excesses of globalization the sort of race to the bottom pitting north versus south those sorts of things and and internationalization was sort of a kinder, gentler way that the academy could could approach these global forces that were primarily economic, but also directly related to huge migrations of people across borders in search of education, in search of work. So while students have moved for millennia, they say Aristotle was one of the first foreign students, so he came from Macedon to Athens, and uh, so this started a long time ago. Uh, but while students have moved for millennia, what we now know, I think, or talk about as international education came into its own 
in the post-World War II era, when programs like Fulbright were established so that a better understanding of other cultures would discourage humanity from repeating the horrors of the world wars. We could ask how that went. A Western government spent large in uh, funding students from developing and war-torn economies to train in a world-class education and to support, uh, upon their return home, economic development and good governance. So you had the post-war rebuilding, the Marshall Plan, rebuild Europe. In the 1980s and the 1990s, essentially, you, uh, you had the end of the Cold War. So Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, smaller state, less government, more individual responsibility, less uh, social responsibility from government. After the Cold War, so really we're talking about 1990 here, the Berlin Wall has fallen. The sort of altruistic post-World War II models of student mobility, of giving scholarships to students from developing countries to help them learn how to trade or, or govern, disappeared. Growing middle classes in, the, in emerging economies encouraged more children to study in the higher quality education systems than they had at home. And an English education was seen as a ticket to a better economic future. And so it was logical that the first countries to receive large numbers of international students were English speaking. Australia, the US, the UK, Canada, and New Zealand. The end of the Cold War also collapsed borders and walls and immediately a hugely enhanced and more liberal movement of jobs, people, and capital crossed these borders. And again, we talk about international education and, uh, and Aristotle or, or students moving to the major centers of learning in, the, in you know, 1200 AD. We had international education in many ways before we had nation states. So it's nice to see that international education actually preceded international in many ways. 1990, for me, was, was a turning point. More people were moving, more people were able to move, borders were easier to cross, oil was cheaper, so you had short-term seasonal labor moving, undocumented workers, multinationals outsourcing, the creation of trade blocks, creating intra-European, intra-North American, ASEAN, uh, European Union, things like that. And so what all of these things did is they created more capital, but they allowed capital to move more quickly across the globe, and governments found it harder to tax cut capital, therefore eroding their ability to fund large-scale social programs like education. And in turn, the institutions, especially in those uh, uh, English-speaking countries, where the industry, if I may, of international education really began, started saying, well, we can start charging these students foreign student fees or differential or international fees. And that is what happened just uh, three or four years after the uh, fall of the Cold War, is that uh, institutions with governments not willing to give them money started looking to international students to buttress their revenues, first to create new sections to teach those international students, and then depending upon their success for bricks and mortar and things like that. So I, I see the 90s as a time when um, the sort of sector of export education, as we now know it, was born. And since then, Canada and BC have been enjoying rapid and some might even say unsustainable growth for over a decade here in 2020. We're one of the most desirable destinations in the world in Canada, and BC one of the most desirable within Canada. Per capita, BC has most international students in the country. The best information we have is that in December of 2019, we have over 640,000 international students in, in Canada, a 160% increase over 10 years, contributing over $20 billion to the Canadian economy in schools. 
BC, over 160,000 international students, over 30,000 jobs, over $5 billion coming into the province. And this is not money that's circulating around because of tax credits. This is brand new money to the province. And governments and institutions uh, realize that. But people have long warned us for many years in international education, do not rely too much on the income that international students generate. It can disappear. Remember SARS, remember H1N1, remember the currency crisis, mad cow disease, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Versify, remember that nothing lasts forever, and remember our dear friend George Harrison, all things must pass. Well, this pandemic has certainly captured our attention, and I think it is safe to say that we are all listening now, uh, moving forward in terms of anticipating immediate, uh, medium and long-term effects on our sector of international education and the downstream effect of that on the movement of international students into the labor force. I think there's going to be some far-reaching consequences here. So that was my, I'm sorry, a long-winded introduction to uh, or a context-creating uh, piece to uh, uh, international student mobility and migration. Thanks. Wow, Randall, you pretty much covered like a couple of chapters in my dissertation in six minutes, so that's <laughs> pretty impressive. I think the, the things that I would like to add to that that um, frame the context even more is that globally international student mobility over the same time period has increased, generally speaking. Canada has reaped the rewards, but we have done that incrementally better than some of our counterparts. And so that, that attractiveness that Randall was talking about, um, that happened for a few reasons. One, because uh, the institutions deliver a high quality product. So I think we've established in the market that education in Canada is of high quality. And I think that's going to be important as we talk about the, the impacts that COVID has and the kinds of educational experiences we provide for students. And I think the other thing is that um, at the same time that institutions were working hard to begin to attract international students because it made sense for them both for their internationalization strategies and for leveraging that uh, incremental income that international students were providing, that government stepped up and played a role not only in investment in the sector, but in really significant policy change. And this policy change had to do with the migration pathways that were allowed to international students. So at the same time, Randall is painting the picture in the 90s about increasing numbers and a real uh, shift in how we uh, interact uh, with the concept of international student mobility. The government of Canada was creating very liberal policies to facilitate international students working while international students. They were considered temporary foreign workers and allowed to work for 20 hours uh, in uh, a week. Uh, maximum while they were doing their studies, and also uh, the ability to work full-time when there was a break in their studies. And then some very generous postgraduate work opportunities 
that allows students that are getting a significant credential of more than two years, credential being an undergraduate degree or a diploma or a master's degree, to work for up to three years in Canada without too many restrictions. And that this would facilitate them getting the experience they need to uh, apply for permanent residence. And for many of the international students, and one of the reasons I believe uh, that there was such uh, not only an increase that tracked what the global increase in, in student movement was, but that we were able to capitalize and gain, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see, market share of international students globally was because we provided not only uh, excellent educational opportunities and a safe place to be in an inviting community uh, and, a, and a diverse cultural experience, but also, and quite importantly, a migration pathway to permanent residence. And so that's the piece I wanted to bring in to say this has sort of created a very interesting critical juncture for the sector, um, but also actually fundamentally the way that we think about uh, immigration in Canada. And maybe, you know, Randall, you and I can now sort of have a back and forth chat about what that looks like in a post-COVID world and what what kinds of things we need to be mindful of how people welcome international students. The other thing, uh, just before we start chatting, that's really important to understand is because there has been such an increase, Rana was talking about 640,000 international students at the end of December of 2019. In our higher education institutions, uh, close to 21% of our campuses uh, will have international, that's the proportion of international students. So there are a lot of international students on our campus, uh, second only to Australia in terms of the percentage, but also that they provide a really uh, significant foreign worker pool. In fact, so much so that international students and postgraduate students who have work permits are greater in number than all other temporary foreign worker categories in Canada. And those numbers are growing because the number of students who are graduating as international students are also growing. So it's not just that we have a certain pool of international students, but we have a growing pool that will keep continuing to supply uh, greater and greater numbers of temporary foreign workers. And so maybe that's a nice entree for you to uh, take it from there and Randall make some comments about what the future might look like with that kind of scenario. Delighted, thanks Thanks for that, uh, that context and background. You, you, you referenced um, market share and certainly uh, part of Canada's appeal, uh, it's sort of rising through the ranks in terms of number one destination globally. Uh, for international students has been uh, its generous immigration profiles and, and the possibilities of pathways in, into, the, into the labor market. Competitor nations like New Zealand and Australia, I won't say are emulating, but are doing also very innovative tweaks to their immigration policies to also buttress their workforces. Those are also aging economies. And interestingly, two of the big world leaders, the UK and the United States, who might have gone slightly different directions in terms of some of their immigration stance are 
both feeling the brunt in terms of new international student arrivals who are looking at the potential for long-term engagement or engagement in the workforce as part of the calculus in terms of where they decide to go. And I'm not sure if Mr. Trump or Mr. Johnson are listening to their institutions, but if they were, I think they might be pursuing uh, different policies. But some of these, um, this market share, these trends even before COVID were, were already in the process. There's not just five countries that people go to now and that international students go to now. Interestingly, no, tw 20 years ago, you would never find an English taught program in, in Germany or in France, for example. Now they, they proliferate because those institutions realize that is what kids from around the world, uh, from emerging economies, want. They want a program in English. And so you've got many, many competitor countries. You've got slower growth. What's happened in our traditionally major feeder markets like China, uh, the number of 18-year-olds in China plateaued, I believe, about three years ago. Japan, an aging population. Korea, an aging population. Even India, younger, but, uh, but aging. What are the, the younger countries? Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, uh, youthful countries. West Africa, uh, Nigeria is one of the fastest growing populations of international students in the world. So you've got new markets emerging uh, the destination country sort of jockeying for position here and using immigration as part of the way to, to, to get ahead. Probably slower growth with the aging uh, East Asian uh, countries. You don't quite yet have either uh, easy access to visas or that burgeoning middle class in West Africa or places like that that can displace other large uh, uh, populations. And another interesting trend that was pre-COVID was the move towards more regional mobility where especially with the attraction of China, countries wanting to A, look at a revenue stream, but for geopolitical reasons, have a whole bunch of people in their region trained in their language and trained in their schools. A lot of students are staying closer to home within Europe, within, within Asia and Australasia and things like that. And how that will affect things in the, in the medium to long term may also be impacted by COVID. We've just seen as... Uh, Australia and New Zealand are sort of uh, patting themselves on the back and uh, seem to be some of the first countries to emerge from the immediate trauma of this pandemic. They're talking about creating a uh, travel bubble between uh, New Zealand and Australia where people can travel visa-free. You don't have to have health checks because there's a comfort level that those uh, populations are on the same plane in terms of uh, uh, transmission of the virus and things like that. Can we see that between uh, China and Canada within the next year? I would say that's doubtful. You know, similarly in Latin America, many of our temporary foreign workers in British Columbia are coming from Mexico, for example. And, you know, so a lot of our students, a lot of our, our um, immigration, a lot of our temporary foreign workers are coming from populations where they might not be part of the bubble that we're creating for ease of travel, whether it's a tourism business or, or study travel. Yeah, this idea of borders, I think, is actually really provocative in our conversation. Because I think the idea of borders and saying that somebody can't come in, uh, that there will be future restrictions and it will probably be applied differently to different countries, as you mentioned, is something that we have not experienced. And when you think about international education, you know, the fundamental premise is that there is movement uh, and, and travel is a component of that. Having those restrictions will have a huge impact. 
I, I will say though that I think that the government of Canada got a lot of things right in terms of COVID and international students. They very quickly, when they put in travel restrictions, said that that did not apply to international students who already held a study permit. They continue to be eligible for work. They weren't going to be penalized because their learning was taken online or remotely. They were included in some of the government funding opportunities if they were in Canada and in a precarious situation. I think that institutions also got a lot right by including international students in their support activities. And instead of saying, everybody's got to get out, out you go. It was a very inclusive kind of con uh, conversation that they were having. So I think we uh, here in Canada have done a good job uh, relative to others to create some very clear pull factors that will keep international students sticky to us. And a lot of the current research and polling that we're doing of international students says that they're still quite committed to Canada, that they still plan to come, but they're not necessarily entirely convinced they want to come in the fall. So there are some that are considering deferrals. And there are some that are not convinced that online learning has the same value proposition compared to the cost of tuition. So there's a lot of interesting things in play there. That idea about borders, who gets in, who stays in, and how, and how the general public is going to feel about restrictions that are not restrictions for some but others, uh, namely international students, that will be really interesting. So yeah, that's one of the things that I definitely flag in the post-COVID world, this interaction we're going to have with the concept of borders, especially related to international students. And then it's the economics. Because of the strong tie between study and work, if we are in a situation where there's this talk of this lost decade and graduates coming out of their degrees and not having work opportunities because of the setbacks economically that uh, COVID have imposed, uh, you know, what will that do for that nexus? I mean, an international student who had expectations to work on graduation doesn't find work or that are starting to compete with Canadians. We, we talk about this labor market demand, but what if the demand isn't there as much and people are feeling the competition from increasing numbers of people that we have already uh, basically recruited with the understanding that we have these immigration pathways. And so um, the economics of that, I think, are uh, in terms of labor market demand are something we have to be very mindful of and also not so much like the stickiness for those that have already made Canada their study destination or even plan to in the short term. I think we will weather that well, but I think in the longer term, if there are really significant economic impacts uh, globally, you will see that more local localization of, of study choices, even if it's still international. And so these, these ideas of hubs or regions of education might really take off. We've been watching those trends, but that acceleration, you know, I think people will be wary about going too far. There will be risk, there will be worry, there will be mitigation, right? And so I think in the longer term institutions and the sector and uh, the economy, 
have to be mindful both of the huge wave of international graduates who are going to be coming on board in the next three to four years at a time where labor market demand may not be so strong, and also very mindful of the pipeline of international students that are coming on and that demand might not be so strong. And so that's kind of a double whammy in many respects. And then of course, you know, that whole quality of education piece. And going back to your introductory comments about access and equality and the opportunity we have in thinking about how we deliver our, uh, what is recognized as high quality education in a way that perhaps is not so exclusive to those who can pay significant premiums and incur significant personal cost, um, but to think perhaps more altruistically about how we reach those people in different ways, whether or not that has uh, migration pathway impacts. So maybe there is an opportunity for the decoupling of what I, I have really observed as being a stronger and stronger entwinement of this study work migration. I, I think another really good uh, statistic that you and I know is that the Canadian Bureau of International Education does a widespread uh, survey every few years asking international students what their intentions are. Up to 60% of the international students, and remember we said that number was over 640,000 currently, up to 60% of them have a wish or intention to apply for permanent residence. That is a huge number. That is a huge number. And so we really need to be mindful of how we communicate that uh, and what that means and to be really sensitive to the challenges that people here in Canada are having in the labor market as we get things going again post-COVID. I wanted to uh, to touch briefly on your, again, the idea of students staying closer to home. And it, it will be interesting. We may not know this for a decade or more, but the relationship between the destinations that students want to uh, go to or are encouraged to go to and our economic supply chains. This has become a huge uh, issue in terms of our reliance on one or two countries with which me at any given time might not have uh, the best relation or we might find them as unreliable uh, suppliers and for key components of things that we manufacture, for key components of our healthcare system or other things like that. Looking at uh, a lot more local supply chains, a lot more supply chains within our bubbles within the countries that we're comfortable dealing with are our immediate hemispheres and how as manufacturing and, and investment moves to um, other countries, uh, as some of the current policies being discussed are, are implemented, how is that going to affect where students come from, where students go to, and things like that. I think that's one of the issues, one of the outcomes that uh, may affect sort of the post-COVID world. Another one that's very dear to my heart, we've been talking about sort of inbound mobility and, and students as a export education, but the whole idea of outbound student mobility, which we don't really see as, as a revenue stream. We see that as a social good. We, we want to get our students um, uh, exposure to understanding the languages and cultures of the nations we trade with, but also just to create this intercultural uh, demographic at home, which is going to be good for everybody. 
it's unlikely. I mean, there's essentially a full stop on outbound mobility probably for the rest of 2020. And people are, you know, a lot of ink is being spilled now on what that will look like as it comes back. Will we still be so reliant on airplanes? Uh, this is a sector that loves to travel, students, uh, faculty, administrators. Will the virtual classroom or some form of that ever be able to replace face-to-face uh, -face intercultural experiential learning? Some people are, are giddy about this possibility about internationalization at home and other favorite pet terms like globalization. And I don't want to even go down the path of, uh, of some of this terminology. My own sense is uh, education is a very social construct in terms of how we do business, in terms of how we study. And it will be a long time before virtual exchange will be able to replace uh, real exchange, virtual mobility replace real mobility. Two months into this uh, pandemic, I am so sick and tired of Zoom meetings already. Uh, to think I would go to a Zoom conference, you have to be fooling yourself. And, and is that going to be the future of um, how we meet, how we travel, and how we study internationally? I don't know, you would have to create holograms or some whole new technology of that in order to, I think, get people off the airplanes. Related to that, the other existential threat of our time is climate change. So now, what do we do if, in fact, we feel we have to be traveling to recruit students, to, uh, to study abroad, to, to conference and network? How do we do that in an environmentally friendly fashion? Do we all get on a boat with Greta Thunberg? Do we, uh, do we just not meet uh, as often? How do we approach some of these, uh, these things? People are very happy with what they're seeing as the effect of this uh, uh, pandemic on, on the environment in terms of uh, clean air, clean water. The only downside is a lot more plastic being used and, uh, and abused uh, and you know, ending up where it shouldn't. But generally, people are saying this should be the new normal. The oil patch is dead. So, COVID, I think, has really helped us to focus our attention on international education, on mobility migration, but also on the environment. Yeah, you know, that's that social part, though. That social part. I, you know, we're old timers, and that experience about face-to-face -face is so compelling. And I think international students, that is the secret sauce. Yeah. And I know even from my own kids, I, they, you know, my, my daughter's in university and she had online learning in terms of lectures being online. And she said, that was okay, but I actually like going to class. And a son in grade 12 who says, you know, I would really just prefer to be in school. And so I think we need to recognize and find a balance between that and, and our climate commitments. It's not easy. Uh, I'm really interested pedagogically, and pedagogically meaning just how we decide to teach in future. Does it become more hybrid? Do we find more flexibility? Will there be, will there be a, a greater recognition of the value of remote slash online slash technology in our learning beyond what we already have? Or is that secret sauce just going to be what we need to make that uh, an experience that we feel connected in. And uh, I guess if I had a crystal ball, I would say the new normal is going to be a little bit less than, and in some ways that less than will have huge and painful ramifications. I think about the private sector in higher education. I think about 
you know, different people uh, moving because they are searching for a better life um, uh, through education. I think these things will become more difficult. I think movement across borders will become more difficult. And even if it doesn't, people are now afraid. And we talked about this. There is a fear. And there is now uh, a salience or a, an understanding that we have to take that risk into account, a risk that nobody really had on the radar. And that risk that things could get shut down again, that I might not be able to get home, that I might not be able to complete my studies, that I might dot, 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 I might get sick, that I might get somebody else sick by traveling. These fears are real, and I think they will be systemic and lingering, and it will create a less than. That idea of the 90%, I think, applies to international education, too. We will not do things the same, but we won't do as much of it either. Sad to say. Sandra, I could listen to you for hours, but I don't know that we have hours. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today. We can carry this conversation on offline. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always wonderful talking to you, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you left me with the last word. So thanks to all of you for listening, um, and uh, I really appreciated it, and good luck to everyone. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. That's it for today. You've been listening to Sandra Shinerell of the University of British Columbia and Randall Martin of the BC Council for International Education. Thanks for tuning in to the Global Migration Podcast. Be sure to check out the UBC Migration website with links to other podcasts, public events, research projects, and of course, more information about today's speakers. And if you want to recommend a guest or topic for the show, send me an email at admin.migration at ubc.ca. Until next time, be well and be kind.